I'm Eric Chemi, and this is Politely Pushy. Lawrence, thanks for joining me here on the podcast. So many things to get into today because you're out with your latest report on ESG. And ESG, we know, is a divisive term, right? There's a lot of good things in there, but there's a lot of things that people respond to. But all of a sudden, AI is now coming up as part of this ESG report. And I did not think of AI as an ESG topic. So I'm not sure if this should be two different episodes or or what, but I definitely wanted to start with this AI part of it because I think if we start talking about ESG at first, we might lose some people. We you know might get a little too divisive, a little too political. But tell me, how did how did AI become an ESG topic? And I'll bring up some of the the research here, the, your summary slide on you know more Americans see AI as a threat than they do as an opportunity. And of course, Lawrence, thanks for joining me here on the show. Eric, thank you so much. Um, yes, we wanted to look at what were the major ESG issues, not only now, but in the next 30 years. And when we asked that, of course, climate change is the dominant uh, environmental and ESG issue. But interestingly, secondly, when Americans are thinking about the future, and particularly the future of work, then AI and automation is dominant in their minds. And so because ESG includes the S, the social, Actually, AI and automation with an aging workforce was predicted to be a major ESG issue that employers and employees should be thinking about in the next 30 years. But, so, but is, it the, is that an S or a G? Is it, it's not environmental, right? Is it S for social? Is it G for governance? Which of the three correct. letters is AI part of? Uh, well, effectively the S. It's the social impact because the question really is what's the role of humanity in the workforce? How What's the balance between humans and technology? When How will... AI affect that balance and how will it impact when the American workforce is aging and there's going to be an even tighter market for talent than there ever has. So it's, it's really the S part of it. But, I mean, the timing is great because obviously the whole election cycle is starting to heat up and the question is, so what are, what are the threats to America? And we, we just asked the open question, is AI a threat or an opportunity? And nearly half of Americans, 48%, said AI was a threat. But does that make it a threat? Or is that just what people think, right? Is it, is it a threat because it's what people think and all of a sudden the, the impression becomes reality? Or, or, you know, is it just like, hey, well, you're, you're right or you're wrong? Like, how do I put this? Can this survey reflect something that because people believe it, they will make it so. They will make it true based on their beliefs. Well, I think you're right. First of all, this was a survey of everyday Americans. It was representative of the American population as a whole. So it is American consumers. And of course, any new technology, any new thing is going to initially be seen to be a threat if you don't understand it. And let's face it, I mean, I'm relatively lucky. I'm a data scientist. I understand a little bit of AI, but most people don't understand a lot other than it seems to be able to be really powerful to do things a lot very quickly. So if you don't know much about something, it's very easy and quite natural as a human to see it as more a threat than an opportunity. But I think on the other hand, what's interesting is the boardroom and where tech companies and many companies are going like, okay, we need to use this as much as possible. Where are we building it into our program? So companies are seeing it as an opportunity Probably the everyday Americans and workers are seeing it more as a threat, um, although there's a balance, right? 48 threat, 35% opportunity. So, you know, there's a bit of a divided poll there. 
part of that, I guess, comes down to what you think your own personal future is going to be. Yeah, I think you're right. It's personally, is it a threat or is it an opportunity, mm -hmm. depending on your circumstance, your situation, your job, your economic profile, and, and how AI could affect that. But you know, this is an ESG report that's a lot of how you're thinking about these things. When when you think of why people say AI is a threat, is it because it's a threat to their jobs? Or is it a threat because, you know, Russia and China will have better AI than us and they'll use it to, you know, kill us and blow us up and, and end humanity? What's the, the real threat here? Well, I think that's a fantastic segue. Let me share a chart with you, which is a chart that we ask, really, where do you think the biggest threat to American security is coming from? There's lots of nuggets in here. And the biggest threat by a fifth of Americans was seen to be China. But... But if you take American, violent Americans and American government together, Americans perceive the American government and violent Americans to be more of a security threat than Russia, more of a security threat than social media or natural disasters or artificial intelligence. So in terms of broad threats to us or to Americans as a country, AI is relatively low at 6%. I, I find it fascinating, for example, that social media is seen to be a bigger threat potentially than AI. Oh, I see. So, so when looking at AI, most people think it's a threat rather than an opportunity. But when you look at AI in the context of other threats, they're saying, okay, I think AI on, you know, on the whole is a threat, but it's not as bad of a threat as social media, Russia, the American government, China, and other Americans who may harm us, like, you know, crazy yeah. people at can go a exactly. little and do dangerous things, yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, we're approaching an election cycle. Quite amazing that the domestic threats are seen to be exceptional concerns, not surprisingly, given the politics that's going on. But in that world, um, artificial intelligence is not playing a big role. When you start to bring it back down to, okay, how does that affect my work and my everyday um, you know, ability, my future of my work, my need to upskill, etc., where I'm going, yes, then artificial intelligence becomes more of a discussion point. But in the broad context of what's happening in America and the world, it's a relatively low threat. And in fact, I would argue probably for America, given everything that's happening with the chip wars, it's actually for America as a whole, probably more of an opportunity. What about what about the people who've already been laid off by AI? What are you supposed to tell them? Well, the, the truth is that AI in many, in most cases, the early use of AI is largely to get rid of the non-productive stuff, the stuff that we don't want to do, like summarizing this meeting or helping to reduce days and days of due diligence or reading and so on. And it just makes, gives humans the ability to do their job faster and better. There will be people that will be laid off, but on the other hand, it will open up a whole lot of tech-related jobs. Uh, I mean, we're going through the digital revolution. There are digital jobs, um, including ironically in social media, that will open up that will be um, actually better because artificial intelligence will be able to very quickly create concepts or drawings or videos and so on. It, I mean, we forget, like, the Internet's only 20 years old. When the internet came aboard, everyone had the same impression. Like, is this going to be the biggest threat we've ever seen? 
No, it turns out to be the biggest social experiment we've ever it's, had. It's more than it's more than twenty years old, right? Like we're in twenty twenty three. It was it was around by two thousand three because I remember Google's IPO was two thousand four. So Google had already been around for several years. But that that's my point. Look how comfortable we are as we are now being online. Right, twenty years down the track, would you see the internet as a threat or an opportunity? I think most people. Yes, there's some really bad stuff on the dark web, and there's a dark element to it. But most people would say, "Hey, it's part of my everyday life." Right. So the right. question is really with artificial intelligence, if we learn how to harness it and make it a force for good, why shouldn't it in 20 years time be just part of what we do? What stood out to you in the data? What was surprising even to you, even being a data scientist, even having run this version of the report before, what was it like? Well, I did not expect people to say X. A couple of things stood out. One is, um, that essentially the enemy is within, that the domestic threats to America, and I think the threat to American democracy is as real as the threats outside. I think that was surprising to me. Was, was there a party differentiation on that? Yes, there was. Um, and, and honestly, it depends on which party's in power. <laughs> if you're not I'm, in I'm curious because you could say, you can make an argument that both voter bases can claim that the other side is the threat to American democracy. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, so, yes, the answer is there is a political divide. And even, for example, when you're looking at what are the biggest ESG issues in the future, there's a, a big political divide. So, for example, 40% of Democrats would say climate change is the biggest single issue. Only 31 in seven Republicans would say the same thing. Oh, I see. So it averages out. It averages out to something in the middle, but but there's a big differentiation there. There's a big differentiation as well. And actually, if you're looking at this particular chart that I have on the screen, which asks people of the following ESG issues, which one do you think will be the most important in 30 years' time? Obviously, climate change dominates, but you can see that AI and automation ethics and the workforce, the future, and so on, is in that second tier. So AI is still on people's minds. It's still there. But that's like, okay, it's not seen to be a necessarily an imminent threat. It's something that we have to work out. What's interesting is the prediction 30 years mm -hmm. from now. Yes. Right? But if you go back to that previous chart, I guess slide 14 that you had up when yeah. we looked at uh, China and, and all that, the Middle East, they're down at 1%. But I bet right. if you would run this in... September of 2001. Absolutely. Middle East would be the number one threat, right? Absolutely. And, and if they said predict 20 years from now what it would be, my guess is it would not be hanging out there at 1% all the way at the bottom of the chart. My guess is people would have kept it much higher given their recent experience. Well, I think, uh, I mean, I think obviously you've got, and this is not any surprise to to any political commentator, you've got two very different systems with essentially America and China, two very large economies and large populations heading in different directions. What that has done is it's focused really the, the thought about the future, largely about it being a, in a Pacific framework. So I think increasingly the global South and the Pacific will be the dominant thought of well, how do we make sure that we secure our bases, get our allies and so on? What's been interesting is that we've lived, oh, up until 20, 
14, 15, we've lived in peace so long since the Second World War that Russia's actions in Ukraine has been an unexpected disturbance to the balance of Europe. And what that has done, actually, ironically, is just made NATO much stronger and, to some extent, brought Europe together in a positive way. And effectively, I think it's made the, the democratic world versus the autocratic world much sharper in focus. But I agree. I think the focus is going to move probably from a European and Middle Eastern focus, probably much more to a Pacific focus in the future. Do did your data say why people think China would be a threat? Is it military threat? Is it economic threat? Is it, you know, another COVID? Uh, like what? What is what is the reason? Because a lot of a lot of data out there saying now is that economically China is actually doing much worse now, right? That the American economy is growing great, the Chinese economy is struggling, and it's unclear that the the general public realizes that they may still see China as this. You know, economic powerhouse, but but a lot of the experts are saying, you know, it's actually they're the ones struggling to keep their economy growing. And absolutely, they are um, in a post-COVID environment with a with a autocratic crackdown on entrepreneurship. I, I think, look, people, as they do in elections, vote largely with their wallets, and I think the threat China is seen to be more of an economic threat than potentially a military threat, which is not to downplay their military importance. It's just to say that actually China and America for, for, for decades have been economically intertwined in a way that has largely generated global growth. Now, a little bit of the string is coming off uh, with, you know, the chip wars or, or the essentially, but it's largely about competitive advantage, economic competitive advantage. Who's going to have the best supercomputer? Who's going to be able to, uh, you know, dominate the uh, economy? I mean, you've seen this very week that iPhones are now banned in Chinese government offices. Exactly. And on the other hand, TikTok's banned in America. So uh, I think, to be honest, it's largely a economic battle with some geopolitical elements overlaid. But you tell me what you think. You're, you're the expert, right? You're the data scientist. I just ask the questions, right? I'm curious, though, this data that you have, and obviously there's more you know, work on ESG in there, and you showed us the, the climate change is the, the top predicted threat 30 years from now. How are your clients using this data? What do you want them to use from the data? What, what is your intention? Sure. I think um, two, two tech outs from this for me, and we'll come back to the subject of AI, but when it comes to ESG, the first one is when we ask people what societal causes should American companies be actively involved with, it really came down to the personal individual approach. It's protect your employees, protect people's data, reduce waste and pollution, all the things that tangibly and visibly impact people. And addressing climate change is important, but it's, it's a bigger order issue and a lesser priority for companies, a big priority for governments. The second thing that really came to us was this whole issue about how do you talk about ESG? And the answer, I think, is don't get lost in the term. Talk about sustainability when you're talking about the environment. Talk about human impact and what it means to everyday people when you're talking about S. And when you're talking about G, talk about what it means to be a well-managed, ethical, socially responsible company. Well, as ESG has become such a divisive term, I don't think it serves us. 
uh, anymore. And I, I would suggest that actually uh, companies that, that are listening to this podcast would actually break it up and talk more about um, sustainable, uh, uh, um, employee-centered, customer-oriented, well-managed, ethical companies that are socially responsible. If they do that, everyone's going to nod their head and say, yep, that's what we expect. That sounds okay. I can permit that type of behavior. Yeah, exactly. I can permit that type of behavior. That's the kind of thing I expect from you. And it kind of a, gets away from some of the woke politics that we've been seeing. Do you recommend that they actually change their behavior or that they just change how they're talking about their behavior? Both. I think the biggest uh, frustration on, on corporate behavior is that companies are setting goals for 2030 and 2015, but people are asking, what are you doing now? What are you doing now to protect my data, to protect my health, to reduce pollution? I think the gap on the environment is largely the now versus the promised future. Right. The, the promises will be for my, you know, the, the next person that has my job, they will have to fulfill promises that I've made and I will be dead or have been fired or quit before right. I actually have to deal with any of these promises. And the same thing on AI. I think the, the real issue for AI is actually how are you going to upskill me? How are you going to reskill me? How are you going to help me take these new skills, which are going to make uh, America more competitive? How can I build those proactively into what I do to make my job easier and better? And so on. Well, that's the real question. The real question is how do we upskill and reskill to take advantage of it? What, well, I hope what that are, helped. What are some what are some myths that you found that you were able to bust through some of this uh, data research? Um Myths, I think, well. Or misconceptions, misunderstandings yeah. that you're able to disprove. I think the misconception, um, first of all, there's a misconception. People think they understand ESG, but but they don't. Right? They, they understand what sustainability is. They understand what helping people is. They understand what being a, you know, a well-run company is. But ESG largely has has become simply a proxy for left versus right or Republican versus Democrat. And actually, the problem is that people are not thinking about it. So that's, that's the major issue. There's, it's just a term. Like it's just become a, another battering ram or another acronym that people are, are throwing around without really understanding that when you look at the, the companies who are doing the best in the marketplace or on the best in the fortune, most of my companies, they're well-run companies, and well-run companies are doing these things anyway, and they're doing it because it's just good business. It's good business to take energy and, and efficiency out of your supply chains and out of your products and make them more sustainable. It's good practice to address cybercrime and protect data. It's good practice to be an ethical, well-managed companies. Look, good companies are doing this anyway. The challenge really they have is how do you talk about it and the danger is if they talk about it the wrong way, it can easily become a conversation that just flies out of their hands. Yeah, I think you're right. Talking about it can really, talking about it the wrong way can really derail 
what you're trying to do. I like sure. actually this the slide that you have up right now mm. and the, the blue box, the big blue box on the right. Americans seem less concerned about AI being used in crime. Right. They're more fearful of it collecting their personal data. Right. They're yes, more absolutely. They're more focused absolutely. on the the privacy than being a victim. Yeah, exactly. Because of course part of the problem with crime is it it's a it's a silent enemy you know it's it's generic uh we all understand that there's a crime problem in places but we don't always see the impact of that whereas we see the impact of our data every day every time we log online every time we go use our credit card etc our data every time we're always being asked for our data and so this sense of protecting my personal data is really it, it's you know, it's who I am. It's my identity. It's some of the most important things that I know and own. It's about my family, etc. So it's close to home. And really, when you're talking about the things that are close to home, you're talking about the things that are more like, well, protect my data, protect my health, etc. De defend my rights. And the things that are more generic, like local community or supply chains or, or cybercrime tend to be lower priorities just because yeah, they don't always apply to me. Right, right. The, the last thing is how much weight should companies put into survey data when we know people are fickle, right? Like we said earlier, they may believe this today, but they may believe something else tomorrow, next week, next quarter, next year. So how should companies affect or how should the data... How should companies let the data affect the company's behavior? Should companies adjust their behavior based on what people think, if what people think can change so easily? No, I don't think so. I think, look, the things that, that matter, we do a lot of work as reputation leaders on reputation. The things that matter to reputation is keep producing really good products that people want to buy that are essentially sustainable products with less packaging, less energy, Make sure you treat your employees well. Be honest and transparent about what you talk about and how you talk about. But if you stray too far from home and get involved in a whole lot of political issues that don't relate to the product or the, the core values you have as a company, you're seen to be you know, kind of like, well, why, why do you have any credibility in this area? The credibility of business comes from making good products and doing business well. It's the same as when you see a Hollywood actor you know, on a stage endorsing a product, you're going like, they've never used that product in their life. So really, it is about companies sticking to their knitting, making sure the products they produce are great, treating their employees well. And when they do that, and when they behave in that way, they don't have a whole lot to worry about. I think what the survey data does is help to understand how do you position your product in your company relative to what are the burning issues of the day saying the right things at the right time. There's a time to talk about protecting your employees. There's a time to talk about protecting your data. There's a time to talk about, okay, this is what we're doing to address climate change. You don't go with the topic of the day, but good companies are doing these things all the time. The question is just understanding how best to land that in a media environment that's as fickle as the surveys as we do. It's, we do. I was just going to say, how much from a reputation point of view is doing all these things, like you said, all the best companies are doing yeah. all the time, but it really only counts for your reputation if people know that you're doing it. So Correct. how do companies best manage 
I want to get the credit for this. I don't want to just do it. I want people to know that I'm doing it. Well, I think there's, there's two things that we've found over years in doing reputation research. First of all, there's a very strong relationship between familiarity and reputation. The brands you know tend to be the brands you love. And the brands you love tend to be the ones you trust and have a, have a, have a good reputation. You know, as your mother said, don't trust a stranger. On the other hand, every day, it's not surprisingly that the world's most reputable companies are also the world's largest brands. So The strong... ones that spend the most on advertising. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so all the brands that we use every day in our household. Right. But yeah, so familiarity is absolutely key to that. The challenge is that you can't just rely on your product because from time to time, products fail. They, you know, there are recalls, there are things that go wrong. So you have to actually, particularly for employees, put some things in place that say, yes, but this is the kind of company we are that stands behind the product, which comes down to how well are you managed what are you doing to protect my data? How do you treat your employees? How are you benefiting the local community? Those are the reputation-building things that are the, if you like, the long-term elements that give you the credibility to go, okay, I'd work for that company. I'd buy from that company. I'd buy that company's stock, et cetera. And that gives you some resilience when, um, when you have a product crisis or something else happens. People go, well, actually, I, th I think they're fundamentally a good company. They just tripped over their feet on this occasion. Right, right. No, this is great. Lauren, this fascinating data, fascinating research. Thanks for okay. sharing a little bit of it with us today and talking about how companies can use that information to manage their reputation, do the right thing, and then keep a pulse on here's what the public is thinking about, right? Here's what the public cares about. So I look forward to the next one and keep us uh, updated on, on how these things change because It'll be interesting to go a year from now, right? When when the yeah, AI exactly. hype, the AI hype sort of died down a little bit. Who knows? Maybe we're in a war with China. Maybe the Russia war is dead. Like there's going to be, I think, some real shifts. You know, the election. Well, I guess we had one year to go and a couple of months. Like all of a sudden, I think this data is going to get really interesting over these next twelve months. I do too. Awesome, Lawrence, and uh, look forward to having another version of this. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks Thank for you. coming on and talking with me today. Thank you. Thank you to my guest and thanks for listening. Subscribe to get the latest episodes each week and we'll see you next time.